0: Good morning, church. I love you, and I appreciate you. Let me ask you a question this morning. If you were going to do battle with Satan, if you knew that you had to go head-to-head, face-to-face with the evil one, how would you prepare to do that? I want you to consider what Jesus did to prepare For that confrontation, Jesus fasted and prayed. Something to consider, isn't it? As we continue our series, we're talking about six different practices, spiritual disciplines, some call them, in order to align ourselves with God and align ourselves with the Holy Spirit and be filled with Him. In the first week, we talked about Scripture And how when we approach scripture, whether in our daily Bible reading or our Bible classes or when we listen to a sermon or we just open up scripture, how we need to expect more than just gaining information. We need to expect spiritual transformation. Do you do that? When you approach scripture, do you expect to be transformed by this word that has God's breath in it. We talked in the second week about prayer and how when we pray, we need to be mindful of the Spirit's presence and participation in our prayers. That we, as children of God, we never pray alone. And then we talked about rest. We talked about how hurry and worry stifle the Spirit's peace. Hurry And worry stifle the Spirit's peace. And so we need to eliminate hurry and worry. And we need to walk with Jesus at a slower pace. Last week, we talked about praise. And we talked about how the church shares the songs and shares the Spirit. That spirituality is a collective experience. How we are all sharing the songs when we sing and how we are sharing the Spirit With one another and today we're going to talk about everybody's favorite subject fasting I can't even begin to tell you how many times over the years people have said to me Wes why don't we talk more about fasting actually I can tell you how many times it's zero zero times has anybody ever said that to me but this is an incredibly incredibly important subject because it's an incredibly biblical subject so when we talk about when we talk about fasting we need to understand what it is, but before we even get to that subject, I, I do want to make sure that we point out what we talked about last week. That spiritual practices are not about trying to control, manipulate, or force God to respond to us, but they are about surrendering ourselves to Him. We we might we might fall into the illusion. Of thinking that if we do these things, if we read the Bible right, if we pray right, if we rest right, if we fast right, if we do these things, then we are forcing God to do what we want Him to do. And nothing could be further from the truth. God is God. You work for Him. He doesn't work for you. And so spiritual practices are not about trying to control or manipulate or force God to do what you want him to do. Spiritual practices are about you surrendering yourself to him. Surrendering yourself not just with your mind, but surrendering surrendering your whole body to him as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, it's about offering your body as a living sacrifice to God saying, "I am yours." And reading the Bible that way, praying that way, resting that way, singing that way, fasting that way, and saying to God, I'm yours. I want to know your will. I want to do your will. I want to understand you. I want to hear you. Aligning ourselves with the Holy Spirit is about recognizing that God is working. Amen? God is working. God is working all over the world. God is active. God is living. And these spiritual disciplines are about us saying to God, we want to see how you're working. We want to hear you. We want to know you. We want to trust you more. We want to obey you. Even when things don't go the way we want them to. Even when things are hard, even when things are harder now than they were before, we still want to do your will. We want to understand what you're doing in the world. And that's really where fasting comes into play. So when we talk about fasting, we need to understand that we are specifically talking about abstaining from food for a short period of time, okay? That's what fasting is. Sometimes we use fasting to talk about abstaining from other things, but specifically we're talking about abstaining from food for a short period of time. Now, usually the basic fast is from sunup to sundown, sunup to sundown, or it can be from dinner one day to dinner the next day. That's the typical fast, like 12 hours or 24 hours is a typical fast. I obviously wanna say, you know, consult your doctor. This isn't a medical seminar. So you, you need to consult your doctor, especially those that have health conditions. So this may not be something that every Christian can do at every period of their life. There can be times when fasting is not a good idea for you. But generally speaking, generally speaking, we're going to talk this morning about why Christians should fast, when Christians should fast, and how Christians should fast. So that's going to be our basic outline this morning. Why should Christians fast When should Christians fast and how should Christians fast? Let's start with that first question. Why should Christians fast? And, And I think the answer, at least as far as I'm concerned, is pretty simple. All of the examples we have in Scripture of God's people who fasted. Israel fasted as a nation. They were commanded in the law of Moses. They were commanded to fast specifically on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was the day on which they collectively repented of their sins, where they mourned for their sins, where they wept for their sins, where they approached God, where the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and atoned first for his own sins, and then atoned for the collective sins of Israel. And on that day, they were commanded to afflict themselves, to fast. So Israel was commanded by God to fast. Moses fasted Hannah fasted. David fasted. In fact, in one of the Psalms, Psalm 35, David says that he fasted for his enemies. He says in verse 11, malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But, he says, but I, when they were sick, when they, they, my enemies, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with my head, bowed on my chest. David fasted. Elijah fasted. Daniel fasted. Nehemiah fasted. Ezra fasted. The prophetess Anna, when she was waiting in the temple for the Messiah. Luke says in chapter 2 and verse 37, And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer Night and day. And as we already said, as Jesus prepared to go to war with Satan, not just in the wilderness, but throughout his ministry, as he prepared for that battle, Jesus fasted. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. See, I I think sometimes we think about that episode and we think that the devil approached Jesus when he was weak because he had been fasting, but could it be that Jesus was actually strong because he had been fasting? The early church fasted. Acts chapter 9 and verse 9, after Saul of Tarsus saw the light and was blinded before he was baptized. It says in Acts chapter 9, verse 9, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. In Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, the the church at Antioch, as they commissioned Paul and Barnabas for Paul's first missionary journey, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And then when Paul went on his first missionary journey, when he would appoint elders in every church, they would appoint those elders with prayer and fasting. Chapter 14 and verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. One of the earliest writings that we have outside of the New Testament, one of the earliest Christian writings we have, maybe from the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, is called the the Didache. And in the Didache, it, it recommends that when someone is baptized, that the person doing the baptizing and the person being baptized both fast. The Didache recommends that Christians fast every week on Wednesdays and Fridays because the Jewish people fasted on Mondays and Thursdays, and so they recommend that Christians fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. Of course, that's not Scripture, but it does go to show that the early church continued to fast. So we could say something like this, based on the examples of countless kings, prophets, exiles, apostles, Jews, Gentiles, teachers, leaders, disciples, and Jesus himself, we should probably ask the question, why wouldn't we continue the practice of fasting? The burden of proof isn't really on why should we fast. The burden of proof is on those that might say, why is that important? Why should we do that? What difference does that make? As we look through Scripture, God's people have always found times where it was appropriate to fast. And if we take Scripture seriously, if in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and the tradition of the church in the early years, if we take these things seriously, we should probably ask ourselves, if we're not practicing fasting, to say, why, why wouldn't we? Why aren't we? If Jesus prepared to face the devil by fasting, why wouldn't I do that when I'm struggling with him? So the next question, though, is when should Christians fast? And this is actually an incredibly important question that perhaps we don't even stop to ask ourselves. When should we fast? Obviously, we shouldn't fast all of the time, and there's an appropriate time to fast, and there's an inappropriate time. To fast. In fact, this is the question that was asked to Jesus by the disciples of John. Look at Matthew chapter 9 and verse 14. The disciples of John, that is the followers of John the Baptizer, they came to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Again, it was tradition in the, in the first century for the Jewish people to fast on Mondays and Thursdays. And of course, the Jewish people at that time would fast. People fast when, when there's a somber moment, a somber time, a time of mourning. And they had experienced hundreds of years of somber moments. They had experienced hundreds of years of tragedy. They continued to be under the, th- under the thumb of Roman oppressors so of course, they would continue to fast, to fast as a people, to fast and pray because of what they were enduring because of what they were experiencing. And so they come to Jesus and say, "Hey, what's the deal here?" The, the followers of John all fast, the Pharisees all fast. This is something that religious people have always done and continue to do, but Jesus and his followers didn't seem to keep at least the the ongoing regular weekly fast. Why are you guys feasting when everybody else is fasting? And here's how Jesus responds, verse 15. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. You see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying that, There is a time to fast and a time to feast, and it's inappropriate to do one when it's time to do the other. I want us to think about that for a moment. There's a time to fast and a time to do the other. If you go to a party and somebody's sitting in the corner with their arms folded and they've got a somber look on their face and they're not eating anything, you think, what's the deal with that grump? Why isn't he eating? Why isn't he enjoying the party? Because it's inappropriate to go to a party and not enjoy the festivities. But it's also inappropriate to feast when it's time to fast. And so Jesus is saying, of course, you've been fasting because you've been waiting for the bridegroom to show up, you've been waiting for the messianic banquet. You've been waiting for the day of deliverance. You've been waiting for salvation. You've been longing for that day. You've been hurting. You've been mourning. You've been weeping. But that day has come. Amen? Jesus is saying, the bridegroom is here. Now's the time to party. Now's the time to feast. Now isn't the time to mourn and weep and fast. Now is the time to enjoy the new day that is dawning. In fact, scholar N.T. Wright says in his commentary on this section, he says, while other movements, including that of John the Baptist, were waiting for the new day to dawn, Jesus believed that the sun had risen. The sun was coming up on a brand new day. And just of the messianic banquet, of the wedding feast of the Lamb, Because the the lamb is here. The bridegroom is here. Now you're getting a sneak peek at the age to come. There's going to come a time, though, where the bridegroom is taken away, where the bridegroom goes back to heaven. And when that happens, you're going to continue to experience sin and death and struggle and heartache and tragedy, and what does Jesus say about that time, the time in which we're living now? He says, then they will fast. Right. After the bridegroom goes away, and that's the time we are now, where we're back to waiting just as they were before, we're back to waiting. Now we've seen him, we've seen the sneak peek, we've seen the preview, we've tasted the age to come. We know who the Messiah is and we know what it's going to be like when he comes back. But we're back to waiting. We're back to dealing with the struggle and the heartache and the pain and the somber moments. And Jesus says when that day comes, When the bridegroom leaves, then they will fast. So we could say something like this, that sin, to death, to disease, to tragedy, to injustice, to struggle, to danger, to indecision. We see that God's people have always responded to moments like these, somber moments, Moments of sin, moments of death, moments of disease, moments of tragedy, moments of injustice and struggle and danger, moments where they have to make an important decision. God's people have responded to heavy, serious moments like these with fasting. And Jesus expects that his disciples will continue to do that after the bridegroom leaves. Jesus says that's exactly what they'll go back to doing. My disciples will fast, and we fast in moments like these. In moments where we're faced with heartache and tears and struggle. There's a time to feast, and there's a time to fast. And we certainly we certainly feast when we think about the resurrection, when we think about the age to come, when we think about what Jesus has done for us and the victory we have in Christ, we feast. In fact, we gather every single week to break bread together, to, to share the cup with each other. We feast on a weekly basis, but there's still plenty of things to fast over, isn't there? But is that our response? Is that the way we typically respond to sin and death and disease and tragedy and injustice and struggle and danger and indecision? When you hear about another mass shooting? When you hear that someone has died unjustly? When you are dealing with your own sin? When your brother or sister comes to you and says, my marriage is falling apart? when your children's life is falling apart when you're struggling in various ways is this how we respond it isn't to say that hey if you pray and fa- if you pray and fast everything will be fixed that's not what fasting is but it is a godly response to these kinds of moments these kind of moments where it would be inappropriate to feast But sometimes we feast when we ought to fast because we don't see the connection between our spirit and our body. But as Christians, we ought to see that connection. We ought to see that we are offering our whole self to God as a living sacrifice. And we want to communicate not just with our spirit and our mind, but with our whole self, with our whole body, what it is that we're going through, what it is that we're experiencing what it is that we're seeing. So when a national tragedy happens, when a community tragedy happens, when a personal tragedy happens, the church ought to respond with prayer and fasting. Again, not to try to force God or coerce God or manipulate God into doing what we want him to do. That's not how it works. But in order to respond to this moment, this tragedy, this heartbreak, in a godly and appropriate way. Number three, how should Christians fast? Again, Jesus directly responds to this question. How should Christians fast? Matthew chapter six that we've already read today. Matthew chapter six and verse 16 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, and when you fast, (laughs) notice Jesus didn't say, and if you fast, Jesus says, when you fast, when you, as his followers, when you fast, Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So how did the Pharisees fast? They fasted like actors who were putting on a play. They were playing to the audience. They were fasting so that they could be seen by other people. They were fasting so that other people would think, oh, they are so committed. They are so pious. They are so religious. Oh, look, they must be fasting. They must be fasting because they are committed to God. They, they keep the laws. They keep the traditions. And Jesus says, when you fast, it's going to be tempting for you to fast like that. But don't. Don't be a hypocrite with your fasting. Jesus doesn't say, don't fast. He says, don't fast that way. Don't fast to be seen by other people. Don't fast so that they look at you and applaud you. He says in verse 17, But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, remember that in the context... Jesus isn't just talking about fasting, he's also talking about giving to the needy, and he's talking about prayer, and he says the same kind of things about giving and prayer. He says, when you pray, go to your what? Your closet, right? And pray in secret. Now, Jesus isn't saying that it's wrong to say a public prayer. He's not saying it's wrong to say, hey, I prayed for you, I prayed for you. He's saying it's wrong to pray publicly if you're doing it to be applauded by and seen by other people. And we we tend to do that, don't we? We tend to do that. If we're honest, we can use prayer as a way to demonstrate and communicate how religious we are. We can say to people, I'm praying for you, even though we don't actually pray for them. That's what Jesus is saying to avoid He's not saying you can never pray publicly or you can never tell somebody that you've prayed. He's saying don't do it in order to be seen by people. And everything that Jesus says about prayer also applies to fasting. He's not saying you can never fast together as a group. The early church fasted together as a group. He's not saying you can never call for a public fast. The the early church did exactly that. He's not saying you can't ever tell somebody, hey, I'm, I'm spending time praying and fasting on your behalf this week. He's not saying any of those things. He's saying when you fast, don't do it like the hypocrites did. Don't do it like they do. Don't do it in order to be seen by people and applauded by people. And again, it's very easy to fall into that trap, isn't it? It's very easy to, whatever spiritual practice we are engaging in, to do it for prideful reasons. It's easy to pat ourselves on the back when we pray. It's easy to pat ourselves on the back when we come to worship. It's easy to pat ourselves on the back when we checked our prayer, our our Bible reading off of our to-do list. It's easy to pat ourselves on the back, but that's not what spiritual practices are supposed to do. And it may be the most ironic that fasting might lead to pride because of all the spiritual disciplines, fasting reveals to us our own weakness and dependency, doesn't it? When we fast, at the very least, it reveals to us how mortal we are. We need food, We depend on food. We cannot live without someone feeding us. We cannot live without God providing sustenance for us. So it reveals to us our dependency, but it also reveals to us our our moral weaknesses too, doesn't it? Being hungry doesn't make you angry, but it does reveal your anger, doesn't it? We, We even call it hangry, don't we? And when you're hungry, it reveals your weaknesses. So it's ironic that we would allow fasting to make us proud. Fasting should make us humble. In fact, we could say that we must fast in such a way that it makes us humble rather than haughty. Because it's only in humility that we connect with God. See, that's what we're trying to accomplish with our fasting, isn't it? Humility. Humility. We want to be humble so that we can connect with God because you cannot connect with God in your pride. God opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. So that's what we're trying to accomplish it isn't that when my friend comes to me and says my marriage is falling apart and that I spend time praying and fasting for them, it's not that I expect that the, fast, the, the fasting to add extra power to my prayer so that now their marriage is suddenly and miraculously fixed. It's so that I humble myself before God because it's only in humility that I can connect with him. It's only the humble that God exalts. And fasting, of course, isn't the only way to humble yourself before God, but it is a way to humble yourself before God. But we, we forfeit that reward. That's what Jesus says, doesn't he? He says you forfeit that reward when you do your fasting in order to be seen by other people. And when you do it to be seen by other people, and they see you and they say, wow, wow oh, you're so religious, you're so pious, and we take that to heart and we pat ourselves on the back and it puffs us up, Jesus says, that's your reward. That's your reward. But when you do it secretly, when you do it to be seen by your Father who's in heaven, then from your Father, you will receive a reward. And I believe that reward, first and foremost, is connecting With God, because it's in our humility that we can connect with God. So, sum it all up why, when, how should we fast? In response to sin and death, disease, tragedy, injustice, struggle, danger, and indecision, we have countless examples of God's people fasting in humility and connecting with the Lord. Again, it's not necessarily a cause and effect sort of thing, but it is a correlation sort of thing. The kind of people who fast in humility are the kind of people who connect with the Lord. So if we want to be the kind of people who connect with the Lord, then I would suggest that we need to be the kind of people who respond to moments like this with prayer fasting. I read a great book this week by Scott McKnight, and I wanted to close with a quote from him. Scott McKnight in his book on fasting says, fasting enables us to identify with how God views a given event. Fasting empowers us to empathize with God. Fasting is about pathos, taking on the emotions of God in a given event. That's what we're trying to do, isn't it? To align ourselves with God. See, when injustice happens, God grieves. When disease happens, God grieves. When death happens, God grieves. This is not the way He created our world to function. Death is an unwelcome invader in God's good world. And God responds to tragedy with grief. And we ought to as well. When we fast, we are empathizing with God. We are aligning ourselves with how God feels about these events. And that's what we want to do. Humble ourselves before him so that we connect with him, so that we align ourselves with him. And that's what Jesus and the Holy Spirit allow us and invite us to do. And maybe there's someone here this morning and you're ready to respond, maybe for the first time in your life, you're ready to respond to Jesus' invitation to fully align yourself with him. When you're baptized, you are buried with Jesus. You are united with him In baptism, And you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. There's no better way to connect with God than having God inside of you. And if you're ready to receive that gift and that promise, the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, or you're ready to come back home, or you're just carrying a heavy burden, and you need your brothers and sisters to surround you with prayer and with care, Our shepherds would love to meet with you after service in the prayer room, or you can come forward as together we stand and sing this song.